1: Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Anoush. And on this week's New Statesman podcast...
0: We speak about David Cameron's defence of his austerity agenda.
1: We speak about labour and the single market.
0: And we ask, do the Tories need their own momentum?
1: Helen is away, so I am joined by Anoush Kellin, our senior writer. Hello. It's been a bit of a, an odd week, I think, in some ways, because it's been quite... I don't know about you, but it's been quite quiet politically, but I feel like everyone's quite tired. PMQs was oddly aggy, right? Even the kind of, can I congratulate the Prime Minister on what a swell job she's doing from Conservative backbench MPs uh, <laughs> were kind of mostly a kind of like were more aggy. They were kind of like, would the Prime Minister agree with me that the Scottish <laughs> Government is full of crap kind of thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. Do you, you been- I think so. I think it feels both stale and hostile because probably because they're running um, previous battles. So on the single market is something that is dividing labor in particular. And then also you have um, the austerity debate has resurfaced. Um, And these feel like old fights. So I don't know when people start going over old fights. It's a bit like in a relationship when you're talking about the same issues that you've always had. It just gets more and more aggressive, but more (laughs) and more boring.
1: Yeah. Um, So to kind of let's let's take those old fights, uh, probably in kind of We'll we'll start with the single market stuff because that feels like the kind of easiest stuff to kind of explain. Um, Obviously, on the one hand, you have Labour's single marketers who, it's kind of weird because they're sort of like a soil sample of the parliamentary Labour Party.
0: Yeah, no, I think you you, um, outlined this very well earlier in the week about how they do represent a broad spectrum of people in the Labour Party and different ideologies on the left.
1: But... In in a way, that problem is also their weakness, which is that they can't really organize a lot of the antics last week with the um, Queen's Speech Amendment, which obviously was, well, one one MP who actually did end up voting for it, uh, but very reluctantly said, every time something stupid happens in this building, it's because a man says we need to have a show of strength. (laughs) And it, it was very much a kind of, okay, we can't win, but we need to demonstrate the strength of the single market caucus and you had a lot of people which obviously it failed to do a lot of people who back staying in the single market in the labour party did not vote for the motion because they basically took the view that what was the point but it was yeah. also partly about people trying to claim leadership of that faction, which i think it's fair to say it failed to yes do so. it failed
0: i think what it showed that not even a fifth of parliament are in favor of staying in the single market. Um, you didn't have any Tory MPs voting for it whatsoever. So you couldn't even prove the fact that you can sort of unite across the House to try and to try and fight for this. So it did seem a completely a pointless show of strength, a show of weakness from Chuka Amuna, who was the one who put the amendment down. And also, unfortunately, it's brought Labour's divisions, which had sort of been buried, at least superficially, for the beginning of this sitting. It's brought them back to the fore. So now the headlines are about Labour... Uh, disagreements over Europe rather than the Tories who are in a pretty bad situation themselves.
1: Yeah, I can't remember who it was, but someone on Twitter put it well, they were just like, you know, at some point, in order to get a good Brexit deal, Corbyn's position on the EU is going to have to be defeated. Mm. But one, it doesn't have to be obvious that it's Corbyn's position that has been defeated. And it's also not going to be defeated in the Queen's speech because no Conservative MP will hold it. I mean, I can't. maybe there's another example, than, but I was looking back through Hansard and I cannot think of another example of a, an amendment failing to carry all of the votes of all of the people who signed it before it went up. Because yeah, lots and lots of people who voted, who you know, went, yeah, I support this. Mm. When the leadership was like, can you not? Were are like, yeah, okay, we just won't. Uh, which does feel sort of unprecedented. So I think in kind of a, it has the problem that it makes well, 'cause actually the big problem for people who want to stay in the single market is not that Jeremy's a bit of a Eurosceptic. Mm. Uh it's that a large chunk of Labour MPs are very concerned, uh, to use that very fraught word about immigration. Graham Jones and Gloria DiPiero were talking about that today. Graham Jones saying, Oh, you know, like it there it's you know, oh, you know, there are impacts it has on on wages. Um now, obviously, the evidence for that is exiguous, to put mm. it mildly.
0: So the, those are the ones who genuinely believe that immigration is c- can be a problem. Yeah. So they're, they're the sort of believers. And then you have the ones...
1: Well, the weird thing is it's kind of one of those things where it's hard to tell how much people are proper believers or they've just convinced themselves of it, yeah. right? Because there's that whole kind of like kaleidoscope of people, some of whom genuinely think immigration needs to be lowered, some of whom are like, look... The referendum was clearly about. I'm I'm more sympathetic to that because I do think the the difficulty is right in my view that staying in the single markets like the the single best way of not having further cuts and yeah and not being in it weakens rather than strengthens what you can do from a left wing perspective, but. It also feels to me fairly open and shut that the referendum was basically, on the one hand, let's have border control and no, the economy mm. will fall off a cliff.
0: I don't really understand anyone who tries to argue that it was about anything else, like sovereignty. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, Or trade.
1: Yeah, like no one gave a flying one no. about
0: trade. So you can kind of sympathise more with those MPs in constituencies where it really is very prevalent, that argument about immigration.
1: And I think the slight difficulty with the referendum result is that The mode of brexit than the average brexiteer in sw1 thinks it was endorsed no no one no one wants that no like there is no caucus for like liberal trade i mean also the weirdness of i care about sovereignty do you know what's really great for the freedom of governments uh against non-state actors trade deals just like have you read any (laughs) recently But the difficulty is, is that I don't believe for a moment that when we get significantly poorer, but there are fewer immigrants, voters are going to turn around and go, yep, I am happy with the things that are unfolding around me. So it does feel like a bit of a a difficult situation. But I do also think that actually the most important thing was the letter in today's FT uh, signed by Keir Starmer, the Brexit Secretary, John Ashworth, the Shadow Health Secretary, about actually saying, look, Theresa May needs to get rid of her red line on the European Court of Justice. Because yeah. actually, if you give up the sovereignty stuff, then lots and lots, a much softer Brexit deal opens opens itself up. Although, of course, that does involve significant limitations on what
2: you can do.
0: Yeah, and of course, the problem for her with doing that is that all of the people who she's been um, capitulating to are those kind of, like you say, SW1 Brexiteers who are really into the idea of parliamentary sovereignty, whatever that means. And that means... Being under the jurisdiction of British courts and nothing to do with the European Court of justice.
1: Someone who had some very harsh words to say for Theresa May was Vince Cable who you interviewed this week for the magazine.
0: Yes, yes. So I went uh, and had a chat with Vince who is most likely going to be the next Lib Dem leader. It seems that he's running unopposed so far. And um, he was talking to me about her speech, the Citizens of Nowhere speech that's now become quite infamous that she made at Conservative Party conference last year. And um, he was saying that he thought that the language that she's used about immigration is, is evil and that that, that particular line could have been taken from Mein Kampf which is quite a a strong statement um but I do think that he's tapped into something um that a lot of people are feeling who might usually be making economic arguments and be more interested in that side of things who feel quite emotional under underneath about what Brexit is leading us to in terms of a country because I think a lot of the patriotism that people have in this country is is pro-immigration you know is pro the kind of uh the kind of community that we've opened up for people from from overseas.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, what, yeah, In terms of, you know, it looks likely that Vince Cable will not face an opponent other than, you know, reopen nominations. Mm. Yeah, how do you think, uh, you yeah, know, as, as sort of one of our Lib Dem watchers, what do you <laughs> reckon pe- the, his parliamentary party reckons to, to that and to him?
0: Um, I think there is a hope, and it's more of a rumour that's born out of hope than actually anything real, that um, eventually when it comes to it, when it's important, i.e. when there's an election coming up, he might stand aside for his soon-to-be deputy, Joe Swinson, who is a younger... a female MP who was also in coalition but regarded as doing some very good things and seen as sort of an impressive one to watch. Um, I asked him about this and I've asked others about this and it does seem to be just sort of made up out out of the hopes of some people in the party. But it's something that could easily happen, I think, um, when push comes to shove um, because she has been sort of tempted by the position before.
1: Um, Other than the fact that his general election campaign wouldn't become an extended disposition on sin... What are the big differences between his approach to the leadership and Tim Farron's?
0: Um, well, Tim Farron um, is someone who was sort of really betting on the Brexit thing for hoovering up all of the votes that they didn't get. So he he wanted to have this second referendum. He wanted to only really campaign on European on the European question. Whereas I think Vince Cable has sort of got the message, even though he wants to carry on with that position, he's got the message that it should be more about talking about housing schooling the nhs other subjects that people are actually interested in and he's and he did say you know labor fought such a good campaign because they were talking about those kind of things that young people care about and that we ran a campaign that was sort of irrelevant in 2017
1: speaking of things that young people don't care about or rather for uh the state of the conservative party david cameron emerged from his two 200- hundred 26 twenty-six pound shed um the shed is actually very impressive if you haven't seen pictures of the shed <laughs> I, I strongly urge googling it um you know i saw those weird things where i'm surprised that like i'm 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 continually fascinated by the fact that the housing crisis hasn't yet started to make itself more visibly felt in major cities with people like deciding that because you always read those, like, terrible articles where people are like, you know, we ate one meal a day living in our parents' room. We show anyone can save for a three-bedroom house. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you yeah. kind of feel like it can only be a matter of time before someone like, I bought a a posh shed and lived in that. I bought a beach
0: house in Albra. Yeah, and
1: lived <laughs> in that for five years. Anyone can buy a house. Yeah, yeah. But he's emerged from his posh shed uh, mm. with opinions about austerity saying that uh people who who wanted to cut who you know who wanted to oppose austerity were actually being selfish because they were spending money that we might need later on. And I th- I have a theory about this which I'm not sure if I've just like gone mad spent too too long talking to people on the labor left. But I think it's actually a really interesting example of how the election result and both the way that uh labor advanced but also the fact that the conservatives retreated from the economic argument has kind of rendered those arguments a bit Um, redundant because actually in many ways he was just saying what Cameron and Osborne were saying throughout the last five years but because they'd um, they basically stopped doing that under Theresa May they now kind of can't when they start again be like what you mean you're calling me selfish the kind of debate has moved a bit because of the
0: because yeah you're so right because they stopped doing it and it didn't really seem to make much difference either way and obviously the party isn't tied to doing that for the sake of the economy it's now made it look like what it really was, which was a sort of ideological endeavor rather than a financial one. Yeah. Um, so when he makes those arguments now, it looks really bad. And also because, like we've always warned, and like the Tories should have sort of realized, when middle class people are affected by austerity, you can't get away with it anymore.
1: Yeah, I think one of the fascinating things is that their great success as a party is they mythologize their their past, right? Mm. You would never have a situation where in 1996, yeah, Wilson dies and most of the left commentary goes, oh, he's a bit rubbish. When Blair dies, people yeah. go, oh, he's a bit rubbish. When Brown dies, some people go, oh, he was a bit rubbish, but he did save the banks, right? The difference is I think that does probably help the Tories win more elections. But equally, it does help them, I feel the the Labour Party has a better idea of what it actually did in government. Um, whereas this bizarre idea, as you say, that like, oh, you know, Cameron and Osborne, you know, they, they put the economics over the politics every time. It's just a lie, right? Their whole plan of austerity was built around redistributing more to the elderly and trying to avoid cuts that affected any of the 37% of people who they needed to cling on to to win a, a majority. Yeah, uh, And actually, in a way, one of May's big mistakes was she went, oh, we'll have some generational fairness. It's just like, I mean, you can have generational fairness if you give young people more, but if you start to, like, shaft the elderly as well, then all you've done is knock a bit off your own coalition.
0: Yeah, and given um, nothing to the people who presumably are trying to broaden your appeal to. Um I think the fascinating
1: thing to watch for though is I don't know if you saw this story about uh the road the bypasses that Chris Grayling has announced that they're going to start building a lot of bypasses to ease congestion. Right. Which also in terms of the sort of not that great economic news is very much the kind of thing if you do if you're worried that the slowdown is going to become you know a more severe crash It'll be interesting to see yeah they tried in in uh, PMQs this week to kind of resuscitate the, oh, you know, austerity matters. I don't know about you, maybe I'm being naive again, but I just feel that once you've sold the pass on that by by giving Northern Ireland one and a half billion pounds, the argument that you have to have pay restraint everywhere else just looks daft.
0: Yeah, as soon as you're spending money on things that are just for your own self-interest and they can't argue that that money to, to the DUP isn't, then you yeah. can't justify saving money, particularly... Um, sort of taking money away from people who work in public services elsewhere. Um, so you can't justify that. And then you've got all of these Tory MPs and now former Tory MPs and constituencies where lots of them have public sector workers who are really affected by the pay freeze and who aren't going to sort of sit, sit back and shut up anymore because the party's in such a bad way.
1: And now we're joined by our digital culture writer, Amelia Tate. Hello. uh, To discuss emails and emotional labour.
2: Yeah, specifically exclamation marks in emails, which I've kind of uncovered this week are very gendered. And women tend to use a lot more, I think 45% more than men do. So I wrote a little piece, which you can see on the website, kind of looking into why that was. And why is it? So the funny thing is scientists originally thought that women were just genuinely more enthusiastic, which I think is quite ridiculous. I love that
0: part of the piece. They they didn't think that there was any element of sexism whatsoever. It was just women are really women are always exclaiming.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We're just like, wow, we can't wait for your report. Wow. Uh, So happy to email you. But no, then they discovered kind of with a new survey and study that actually women just feel more obliged to be friendly. Um, and that online there's this thing called enthusiasm constraint, which I'm sure we all know, which is kind of if someone sends you a text with a full stop on the end, you think, oh, my God, they're really mad at me. What have I done wrong? And women are kind of more concerned about, you know, slamming in loads of exclamation marks to show that they actually are friendly and they do care about talking to you.
1: Anoush, do you use a lot of exclamation marks?
2: I do, actually. I, my my emails are
0: quite, um, quite embarrassingly keen, mm. um, but I found that actually that generally gets me the the results that I want in terms of getting interviews with difficult people, or in terms of trying to mollify maybe like an angry PR or, or someone's advisor. Um, so I found that it actually works in my favor, but I'm not sure whether or not it makes me look very professional. And I do know that maybe I'm using the fact that I'm a woman emailing. Mm-hmm. um in a way, to sort of try and come across friendly. It's definitely just to try and sort of pl- placate the person on the other end of the email. It's not because I'm super yeah, enthusiastic. exactly. Like, I can't yeah. not
2: do it, even though I've written this and I kind of realised, I spoke to a few men who were like, no, I find it cringy. I mm. find it embarrassing, you shouldn't do it, but I can't not do it. When it comes to writing it, I have to be, you know, hello, th- hope you're well.
1: I think there's also an interesting revealed preference and then all those men who may have said, I find it cringy and embarrassing. I bet if you didn't email them with question marks, they'd be like, oh, Amelia over at Accounts. <laughs> She's a bit bit dour, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, that's
0: the thing and I, I and in your piece you wrote about this mm. and I've heard anecdotally people do get called up on their email manner sometimes mm. and it's always women. I just don't think any man who sent emails with no exclamation marks and very abrupt sort of sentences and full stops would ever get called up on that.
2: Exactly. I mean I wrote that piece in a day and kind of just called out to people, you know, what are your experiences and two women got back to me almost immediately saying they've been told off for kind of being too abrupt or rude in their emails and then had to start using exclamation marks and phrases like, sorry to bother you, and that kind of apologetic Yeah, stuff. I'm just wondering. Just wondering, yeah. yeah. Apparently women say just a lot more than men in emails, which Yeah, is I can believe that. Yeah. I definitely
0: do that all the time. Yeah. Um, but I benefit sometimes because people assume that I'm a man from my name because mm. you can't tell. Um, so I've had experiences before where someone who I've gone to interview has been surprised that I've been a woman, or a contributor when I used to be an editor on the site, um, has been much ruder to me when they found out that I am in fact a woman and not a man, and hasn't accepted the changes I've wanted to make their, mm. to their articles as uh as graciously. So it's interesting what people's perceptions are. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: fascinating. I haven't thought about the fact that like your certain your name is, you know. Ambiguously gendered. Mm. before. Mm. Yeah, do you is.
2: use exclamation marks, Stephen?
1: Do I use exclamation marks? This is actually an interesting question. Um, I really should have brought down my phone for the purpose. You of don't. <laughs> I feel like
2: you're yeah, quite I abrupt. Feel like yeah, if you yeah. don't remember, you don't do it because I'm so aware. That you're I'm a doing fan it. of the
0: sure. Full stop.
2: <laughs> the enthusiasm. You do, do that.
1: Oh God. Well, that's,
2: uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just saying. I think I, I as as we were talking, about, I was thinking about an email that I've I've just sent to someone because despite the fact that. As we discussed earlier, it's not. Uh, it it actually hasn't been that news intensive a week. It does feel. Uh, I do suddenly feel quite tired, which might just be the slight cold I'm incubating, um, and I'm very aware that I did something about. Yeah, looks great.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mm.
1: Please send a final draft. Bye, Stephen. Um, yeah, um, which is interesting because it's not something. I realise the only thing I'm sort of visibly aware of the difference between uh, me and my partner in the way we do things is uh, her weird thing about mood lighting.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which
1: does seem to be a woman thing. <laughs> <laughs> Women seem to be opposed to turning on the top light.
0: Yeah, I hate the top light. I will mm. never use it. Mm.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 it's one, one of those fascinating line. things because it <laughs> must be, because obviously it must in some way be like indoctrinated behaviour, right? Mm. But what is the indoctrination for mood lighting? Yeah, I don't know. What when that does that would happen? Be. Why the enthusiasm thing? I kind of get a bit more right because you know, like if you're not being enthusiastic, you know, like that feels like fairly classic women having to like pacify men mm-hmm. kind yeah. of thing. Did, Oh, from when you talked to people, do women also do it to one another or is it a way that women yeah, talk to Yeah, I
2: think women do it to one another, but they do it with genuine enthusiasm. <laughs> like you might do a triple exclamation mark, um, especially like friendships, more personal emails. That's what I found out. But yeah, I think in general, you know, your single exclamation mark after just a random statement is... To men. I mean, the reason I thought to write this piece was because I was emailing a man and um, I was doing my usual exclamation marks and he was just replying with kind of full stops. And I thought, this feels a bit weird. I'm just going to emulate what you do. And as soon as I emulated it, he was like, oh, am I bothering you?
1: <laughs>
2: Whoa. <laughs> I wow. know. So and I was like, oh, I was just trying to give you like for like. Because usually you just morph into the register of
0: whoever you're emailing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, yeah. I usually will just like frame back or if I'm tired, we'll drop <laughs> drop further down a register yeah. as it were. Mm, but yeah, like but you but yeah, that that is that's pretty weird.
2: I that's know. Weird. I feel like we just can't behave the same way which is yeah. I mean, the the real problem here cuz it's obviously not inconvenient to press shift and 1 in your emails, but it's the fact that if you didn't want to do it, you you kind of feel obliged.
1: Mm. Anyway, thank you. Thanks. And now it's time for a feature we call You Ask Us. And it's a simple question. You, know, One of the reasons why Labour did very well in this election was their large and enthused mem- membership, the shareable videos produced by mostly by Momentum and by some of the trade unions. That did incredibly well on Facebook. Could the Conservatives get a Momentum of their own?
0: Well, this is the big question, because Michael Gove um, last week said, we need to learn from Momentum. We need to our party needs to try and come up with some kind of answer to that movement. And so I have been asking around and um, it does look like there is a real desire among particularly those uh, MPs who either lost their seats or had their majorities uh, severely cut um, that they need to have at least an organisation that will give them the infrastructure to sort of scramble mainly young enthusiasts enthusiastic activists um, very quickly when the next election is called because you have MPs in marginal seats who have seen places like Battersea who have seen huge groups of momentum activists out door knocking and also have seen their social media presence reaching so many people in in marginal seats when they have nothing to counter it with and so there is a worry that uh, they just don't have the infrastructure there to do the same thing next time.
1: So the, your piece is very good, and I strongly urge uh, anyone who hasn't read it to dig it out. But I think, in an odd way, this this kind of conservative obsession with momentum, I think, is missing missing the point. You know, a, a while ago, yeah, actually, you yeah, know, in the week of the election, I did a piece about like Labour's very effective campaign in kind of one of those awkward moments where you don't know what the result is, so you kind of hope mm. than whatever it is, it will, will work <laughs> fine. Um, and one of the things that Momentum has always said, they thought the lesson of, they basically thought, yeah, there's a lot of lessons that you can ignore from American politics, but the big lessons from Bernie Sanders' campaign they thought were hold great, r- hold big rallies, do great videos. Mm. And I actually kind of think, in many ways, the thing that conservatives can learn from Momentum basically like have great vi- videos, right? In the referendum, the, the kind of thing that was going viral, viral on Facebook were express articles, about how awful the EU EU was, because that touched a chord with people. Mm. Um, in the twenty fifteen election, it was the whole oh, you know don't do a deal with the SNP because that touched a chord with people. Yeah, momentum and also some of the stuff that the CWU did uh, did well on online because it touched a chord uh, with people. I think in another way one of the things that I think would worry me were I conser- uh, conservative is that their main thing is like, oh, how do we, what's our structural version of momentum, not our, what is our thing which makes people as enthusiastic as...
0: Well, exactly, enemies. yeah. I mean, that was basically what I was hearing from from lots of people was, well, that's putting the cart before the horse. You can't have, you can't build the infrastructure unless you have something to build it around, uh, uh, something to build it around. And, um, and that kind of message that will get, First of all, we'll get young people enthusiastic enough to sign up and go out and 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 campaign for you. But second of all, to have a subject for those viral videos that you want so badly to, uh, to to be a hit among the voters that you want to reach.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm a bit of a I, I'm a puritan. Right, I don't find the whole lolol Jacob rees Mog thing remotely amusing. No. <laughs> um, do you think having done this piece? And if they had someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's like, oh, he's a meme, oh, you know, he's a posh Tory, they would do better in that social media arena.
0: Well, to be honest, like, I, I don't find it funny at all either, um, because if you've seen some of the votes that he's filibustered on, he's actually <laughs> quite an objectionable politician. But it would give them something positive because they all of their adverts were attack ads, um, basically um, saying horrible things about Jeremy Corbyn and Diane Abbott. So at least if they had sort of something vaguely funny with Jacob Rees-Mogg and his funny voice and his glasses that maybe some people will think is amusing, at least that would be a different message and maybe something positive and maybe something a bit more um, a bit more creative. Um, so I'm sure that that would do better for them than not doing that.
1: Oh, God, well, I for one don't welcome our new Rees-Mogg course. <laughs> anyway... You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kellian. It's produced by India Bork and mixed by James Shield. Our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra and is licensed under Creative Commons. As you may be able to hear, I have a slight cold. In order to afford cough medicine, I need you to subscribe to the New Statesman. That's right. If you don't subscribe, I may die. Slash have to go home ill.